1998. Uh, so it's been 20 years, uh, hard to believe, but uh, it's, been, uh, it's been a wonderful journey walking together with, uh, with so many of you along the way, your patience with us as we grew into it, and, uh, and uh, it's been good. I think a potluck, I was just thinking about it, a potluck seemed really appropriate because everybody brought something, and that's the way it's been for 20 years. Um, everybody just brings something, and that's who we are as a family, and thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Uh, This morning, we are continuing on in a series on uh, marriage that we've been talking about for the last number of weeks. This is uh, week five out of six. And as we press into this, I mean, I would, uh, one, I guess, encourage you that what we're going to talk about this morning and and apply to uh, marriages is also very applicable to to everyone in your Christian life. And I hope that that's what you hear first. And even before you apply it to your marriage, it really goes to your soul and gets worked out in your marriage. This morning we're talking about the, sermon, the title of the sermon. Did you see it? Dying to love your spouse. You know, we're dying to do so many things, right? I'm dying to go, I don't know, to Hawaii. I'm dying to whatever. But are you, uh, are you dying to love your spouse? And this morning I want to talk about the fact that the Bible actually says quite literally that's what you're supposed to do. We're in Matthew 16, 24, and 25 this morning. A couple of brief verses couple of crucial verses. Jesus says this, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you Again, for your word that is living and true. Let it come into our hearts this morning as something utterly true. But also let it come into our hearts this morning as something alive and powerful. Let it come and call us to you afresh. Do afresh, uh, bringing us to our knees in your presence and a surrendering of ourselves to you in the fullness of who we are. Help us to hear your voice and your word speaking to our souls and calling us to yourselves. For we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. When we talk about doing marriage, doing it well in a way that that honors God, I have been trying to say in so many ways that you can't talk about it in some isolated sense, which is what we do. Here's the Christian life, and then here is marriage. And what I've been trying to do is put your marriage, if you're married, to put your marriage at the center of your Christian life, because in many ways it is at the center of your lives. If you're married, that's part of what it means to be married. And so we have to think of the broader context of the Christian life if we want to understand how to do marriage well in a way that honors God. Because as we've talked over the last many weeks, that every day as we live in the covenant of marriage, we live with God keeping covenant with us, loving us, embracing us, being faithful to us, and walking in that covenant, that is where we keep covenant in marriage. The oneness that is at a heart of marriage, that you are no longer two but one, and this oneness that exists that we seek at the center of our marriages is empowered by and lived out of the oneness that we have with Christ. 
in the way that he loves us, in the way that he draws near to us, in the way that we draw near to him, the way he relentlessly pursues us. And so we are to be relentlessly pursuing, following him. And it is out of that oneness that we seek oneness in our marriages. It's not something way over there. The fullness of the Holy Spirit that transforms our hearts as we looked that a couple of weeks ago that he says to be filled with his spirit, that fullness that transforms our hearts, right? And leads them and makes them, transforms them into hearts that worship and are full of thankfulness and gratitude, hearts that are mutually submitting to one another. It is out of that fullness of the spirit that we are to love our spouses and to pursue our marriages, the fullness that empowers our marriages, the fullness that empowers all of our Christian life. We talked last week about God's eternal purpose of making us like Jesus. We call that sanctification, but how, how his eternal purpose to make us like Jesus, he pulls it up, pulls our marriages up into that purpose, and he makes us partners in the pursuit of holiness. Right? That we are brothers and sisters in Christ who are seeking that eternal purpose then no longer alone, but together. We're partners in it. We are to be allies and not adversaries. And so our marriages are the first place where every spiritual reality in Christ that we are called to, to experience and to live in and to live out, and our marriage is the first place we're supposed to do that. At home. At the core of our lives, lived out, not as the last place, which often it is. We find it easier to do it at work or to do it at church or to do it in our small group or to do it at the grocery store, you know, to live out the, all of those things I was just talking about. And, and often the, the home is the last place we do it. Somehow we're, we're different there or the, we think there's somehow different rules apply there when they don't. All of those rules apply at home first and foremost. And this morning, I want us to see that the same problem lies then at the heart of the Christian life. It's the same problem that lies at the heart of our married lives. The same problem that we struggle with in, the, in following Christ and being who he is calling and making us to be is the same problem and struggle that we have at the center of our married lives. And it's simply this our selfish hearts, our core problem. In the whole of the Christian life, and, and so in our marriages, our core problem is our selfish hearts. My selfish heart. In your mind, you're thinking, no, his selfish heart. <laughs> or her selfish heart. No, 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 no. You're not responsible for their heart. And, and until you get the log out of your own eye, you're not going to be able to see, you know, the, the fleck in their eye. But, you know, we have to, and that's what that text means, really, is look at your own heart first. So I mean my selfish heart. It's the core problem of the entire human race. It's our self-centeredness. It's what's wrong with the world. It's what's wrong with our political process. It's what's wrong with, with everything. The effect of the fall from the very beginning on the human race is, this, is exactly this. It has taken, it has twisted our hearts away from being God-centered, God-worshippers, God-servers, God-knowers, God-lovers, God-honorers, you know, living our lives in service to him. Our, the, the fall twisted our hearts away from being God-centered to being self-centered. That's at the core of it. 
It's the core of your problem with God, and it's the core of your problem with your spouse. That self-centeredness, the fundamental human problem, is not that we sin. A lot of times we just think, oh, if I just didn't sin, if I just didn't sin, I'll try not to sin. And the problem is this. It's not, the problem isn't just that we sin. It's deeper than that. It's because our hearts are twisted away from God that we sin. And the core problem isn't things we do necessarily, oh, if I just didn't do this. The core problem is there's a twistedness at the core of our hearts. Theologians have said it this way, do we sin because we're, do we, are we sinners because we sin or do we sin because we're sinners? Do you see the difference? One focuses on the actions. Do, are we sinners because I've sinned? Oh, I sinned again today, so I'm a sinner. The Bible, that's upside down from what the Bible says. The Bible says you sin today because you're a sinner. And your heart is fundamentally twisted away from God. Right? And so the core problem is a heart, is at the very heart of us, quite literally. This is what Romans 8, 7 says, means when it says that the mind that is set on the flesh Right? And so the mind, and we use, Paul uses theological language here. He uses other language elsewhere. We're going to see that the flesh is the old self, the old man, the old woman, the old you. It's the you apart from Christ, the you apart from his spirit, you when you're not born again. It's that part of you that is not before Jesus and the spirit intervenes. The mind that is on the flesh is hostile to God. What does that mean? It means it's twisted away from God and is more concerned about me than him. And it, and, and it doesn't want a God, he's hostile, who intervenes, who tells me what to do, you know, and we see this in the world all the time, don't tell me what to do. It's hostile to God, it does not submit to God's law, it cannot. Indeed, it cannot, right? It sins because it's a sinner, right? It, it it does not keep the law because it cannot, because there's something twisted, hostile at the very core of us. The basic human problem that I'm describing invades our marriages. We have become, God says throughout the scriptures, we have become slaves to ourselves, servants of ourselves rather than his servants. And that's the fundamental problem. We live for ourselves. And we all still struggle with it, that old self of living for ourselves and living out of that self, as opposed to living for God and out of a new heart that is in Christ that lives for him. It invades our marriages because we have this problem at our very core. This is why in Romans 6.22, he says, you have been set free from sin. And this didn't make the slides. You've been set free from sins. So if you're looking for it, Romans 8, 7, you can write it down, look it up. No, Romans 6, 22, sorry. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. That's how it describes salvation. You've been set free from sin, that is, from being a slave to sin. And in their sin, I'm defining for you as being twisted away from God and being self-centered. You've been set free from being a slave to yourself and your selfishness and self-centeredness to be a slave, a servant, to be God-centered. Right? That's the fundamental movement, the fundamental thing that goes on is God is saving us from ourselves. See, a lot of people in the world have it backwards. They think salvation is that they get to be full of themselves. 
and do whatever they want and to live for us and for me, right? It's to be full however it is. And the Bible says that actually is a slavery of sin and death. And he says freedom, true freedom, as the Bible describes it, is the freedom to serve and know and love God which is what we were created for. And that ultimately is freedom. It's not a question about whether you're going to serve someone. The question is, whom will you serve? Yourself or your creator? Those are the only biblical options. Being delivered from our self-centeredness is the heart of discipleship. And so it is the key to our marriages. Right? Being delivered from our self-centeredness is at the very heart of discipleship. And so it is at the key of our marriages. R.C. Sproul says about the text we're about to look at, he says, this is one of the clearest, starkest statements of what the Christian life is about that we find in all of Scripture. What he's saying is, this is it. Clearest, starkest, most lucid statement of what it's all about, of all of Scripture. He says to follow Christ, as Christ defines it, is to live in the shadow of the cross, and there we must be willing to die. This is why Luke 14.27, in reflections of this statement by Matthew, he says, whoever does not bear his own cross, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple. It's not that he's uh, not as good a disciple. It's not that he's a second-rate disciple. It's not that he's not a fully committed disciple. It's not that he's any other kind of disciple. He's not a disciple, right? That's what Jesus is saying there. Unless, Unless someone takes up his cross and comes after me, follows me, They're not a disciple because that's what a disciple is. And that's what this text this morning is telling us, right? We see in verse 24 how he says, if anyone would come after me. What does that mean? If anyone wants to be a Christian, if anyone wants to be a disciple, right? So if that's what you want, if that's what you think you, you know, that you are, if that's what, or if that's what you want, he says, if anyone wants to come after me, this is what it takes, right? This is, this is what defines it, right? And so really, if anyone come after me, you could take and say it's the same thing as, you know, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. If anyone would come after me, he has to follow me, right? If anybody wants to follow me, he has to follow me, right? If you want to follow me, you got to actually follow me, right? If you want to be my disciple, that means you got to follow me, right? Somehow we have defined Christian as something other than actually following him, right? Everything he says, his word, his way, his life, and conforming ourselves to to that, that's what it means to follow him. To follow him is to know his word, to hear his word, to accept his word, to live his word, to obey his word, and to conform ourselves to his person and his character. If you want to be my disciple, you're going to have to follow me And we said, this is a whole sermon last week, right? God's eternal purpose is to conform you to the image of his son. And that's what it means to follow him. So he says, what does it mean to follow me? And those two things in between, if you want to come after me and you got to follow me, he defines what it means to do that, which is to deny 
ourselves and to take up the cross. Right? That's the heart of discipleship. The clearest, starkest, most lucid statement of it in all of Scripture, according to one of the greatest theologians of our age. Denying ourselves and taking up our cross. This happens at conversion in one sense, that you can't become a Christian unless you do this. In a sense, forsake ourselves and commit ourselves fully and wholly to Christ. Right? That's what it means to become a Christian. It happens when we make that movement, but it happens every day following that day. Right? It's an everyday thing. Every single day of the Christian life, we are to be denying ourselves the old self, dying to our old self so that we can fix our eyes on Jesus and follow him and conform ourselves and our lives and our thoughts and our attitudes and our choices to him. To do his will, not our own will. And so Jesus is purposefully excluding people who say they're Christians but who do not live lives that are marked by the essential things that it means to follow him. So he's excluding anybody who does not deny himself and does not take up his cross is not following Jesus. And he is excluding that group. And it's so important. And it's why Sproul says it's, 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 it's at the very center at the, of, of all of his statements because we have a church in the 20th century in America and around the world, especially in America, who very, so many folks who make the profession and make the claim, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, whose lives are not marked by actually following Jesus, denying themselves and taking up their cross and being conformed to him. So we need to be clear when Jesus says, You need to deny yourself. We have some idea what that means. And to take up the cross. And I think there's a lot of confusion about that. What does it mean to take up the cross? So a lot of folks say, when I go through a hard time, I'm bearing my cross. No, you're not. (laughs) I mean, there are many ways that suffering is one of the crucibles in which we are sanctified. But when he says, take up your cross in this text, we need to be clear that what he means is for you to die on it. He means for you to die on it. In verse 21, he told them, if you jump back just in a little context, you know, he says, you know, from this time, Jesus began to show his disciples that a couple of things, he must go to Jerusalem and he must suffer many things at the hands of these people and he must be killed. He must die. And we know the disciples are writing this well after the fact. They know very well what he is saying, that he is going to go die on the cross. And we know it because we're well after the fact. We know that's what he means. In other words, what he is saying is what's going to happen is I must go take up my cross and die. That's what he tells them right before this. And then he says, and you too, if you want to come after me, are going to have to take up your cross. Right? And very clear ought to be in our heads what it meant for him and what it means for, for us. And if we, if we had any confusion, he says in verse 25, for whoever would save his life is going to have to lose it. Right? If you want to live, you're going to have to die. Right? Isn't that what he says? Anyone who wants to save his life is going to actually lose it. If you want to live, if you want to keep your life, your old self, you want to be in charge, right? you want self to be king, you'll lose your 
real life, the potential of life, the eternal life, the life that is in Christ. It says, but whoever loses his life for my sake, whoever denies himself and takes up his cross and follows me, whoever loses his life for me because he commits himself to me, you'll find it. The paradox, right? The beautiful paradox. It's only by losing our lives, dying ourselves, that we can actually find life, our true selves, the abundant life. Jesus, what Jesus is talking here is about the abundant life, right? He said, I will give you life abundant, but the life abundance on the other side of the cross. It's through the cross, just like it was for him. It was through his death that he tasted resurrection and life. And he says, now, Sproul said, in the shadow of the cross, what it means to follow Christ, he has told us, it's the same road of self-denial and, and dying to self that Jesus walked. The way to the new self, to the recreated image, to, is to follow him to the cross so that we can follow him into the resurrection on the other side. The cross was an instrument of death. Everyone who took it up. So when, when Jesus is saying this, we wear it as a golden emblem, you know, or we tattoo it on our bodies or we put it in various, you know, places uh, standing uh, to remind us. But because it is so ubiquitous in our, in our lives, we, we forget that it was an instrument of death. It's like wearing a golden noose around your neck. You know, or putting a little scaffold up here with a noose hanging off it. You know, that's what it was like. It was an instrument of, of death, of torture, torturous death. Everyone who took up the cross ended up nailed to it. That's the way it was. When he says, in that context, when he says, take up your cross, if it's your cross, right, if you're carrying your cross, there's only one thing that's going to happen at the other end of that road when you take it up, is you're going to get nailed to it. Right? And that's what Jesus is saying. Romans 6.6. 6, Jesus says, we know that our old self was crucified with him. In order that the body of sin, right? That the mind of the flesh, the old self, the self twisted away, the self-centeredness. The old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, enslaved to ourselves. In many ways, he came to save us from ourselves so that we could belong to him. And the only way to save us from ourselves is to deliver ourselves to the cross just as he was. Galatians 5.24 says this, those who belong to Christ, those who go after Christ, those who follow Christ, those who say they are Christians and actually are, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh. Right? By definition, it's the only way. He's why he's saying, the only way, if you want to come after me, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself. You must crucify the flesh with its passions and its desires. The old self has to go. You know, the old self can't be put in a closet. The old self can't be, you know, like, you know, in the attic, like the, the crazy uncle that you don't want people to, you know, meet. You know, the old self. He says there's no taming the old self. There's no, you know, containing, controlling the old self. The old self, he says, has to die. 
is crucified with me. And he says in that passage, he has crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. We read that and we often think sexuality. Right? If you crucify the flesh with its passions and its desires and we think sexuality. But I would tell you that's not what he meant. It includes that, but it's a really small part of it. When he says crucifying the flesh, it's the whole self that's twisted away from God. When he's crucified the flesh with his passions and his desires, it's all of our greed. It's all of our lust for money and power. It's our lust to be right. It's our lust to, to get our way. It's our, our, all of our passions and desires. When he, when he says that you have to crucify the flesh with all of his passions and desires, think of your marriage. Think of all of the passions and desires, the things that you want, the things that you demand, the things that you have to have, the things that, that, that guide it, the, the, I mean, you fill in the blanks of all the, the stuff that comes flowing out. The wants, demands, the needs, the old self focused on self. He says it's crucified. All who belong to him, all who come after him, it's a done deal. It's why in Ephesians 4, 22 and 24, we've referenced it a couple times in this series, to put off your old self. Why? Because it was crucified. It was definitively, absolutely, when Jesus was crucified, when your faith is in him, you too were crucified, right? Past tense, done deal, once for all, definitively. And because in 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 forsaking the old self and taking up your cross to follow Jesus because the old self was crucified with Christ. He says, now you got to spend the rest of your life putting that self off. Start being done with it, forsaking it. Deny yourself. That old self, that old selfish self, that twisted to me self, that demanding self, the I that so destroys us. Put off your old self. It belongs to the former manner of life, and it's corrupt. There's something twisted at the very core of it. How? Through all of those desires that you think are so fine and legitimate, and so you let them persist. And he says, they're deceitful desires, and you got to put them off as a part of an old life. Why? So that your minds can be made new in the image of Christ to put on a new self created to be like God into righteousness and holiness and change everything. There are two yous. It's an old false you twisted in its core full of desires and passions and all of that stuff. This self must be denied and crucified so we can put on the new self. Let me walk through a few ways that we apply this in our, in our Christian lives and then in our marriages. And if, and if you haven't already, start to start thinking about your marriage and what it means that if I did this in my walk with Jesus and I lived it out at home in my relationship with my wife or my husband, how things might be radically transformed and different. Let me go through a few things. First of all, just nailing it down that to follow Jesus means conforming our lives to his, his life, his teaching by the power of his spirit, right? That's what it means to follow him. By his spirit, coming into his teaching and his life and his purpose and being conformed to it. And the only way he says for this to happen, you cannot have yourself conformed to his self if your self lives. 
right? If it's alive and kicking, then, then, then it's not going to happen. The only way for this to happen is to deny ourselves to, to conform ourselves to him, right? Not, not my will be done, but your will be done, right? It's the only way for it to happen, the death of my will, to do his will, serve, obey, honor, please him. The only way to do it. Luke adds, you got to do it daily. Same text, same quote, and Luke, after take up your cross, adds the word daily. And most of you would have, deny yourselves and take up your cross daily. Right, so that goes to the thing. It has happened once for all in Christ. When he was crucified, we were crucified. When he rose, we rose. But because that happened, he says that daily we are to deny ourselves as a way of life every day to take up our cross and crucify that old self and every day to put on that new self. Romans 12.1 says to present your bodies as living sacrifices, right? As present your bodies as those who are dying to themselves on the cross every day so that you can be holy and acceptable to God. Calvin says we're not our own and therefore let us forget ourselves, right? We're not our own. We died that we might belong to Christ and those who belong to him have crucified the flesh so we are not our own if we belong to him and therefore let us forget ourselves and our own interests as far as possible. We are God's own, not our own. We're bought with a price. We belong to him and therefore every part of our existence should be directed toward him and that includes our marriage and all of this should be working it out in my marriage. I need to be denying myself and dying to myself and conforming myself and directing all of my energies to honoring and pleasing and serving Christ. David Platt says, this is what it means to follow Jesus and to be a part of his church. You die to yourself, putting aside self-righteousness and self-indulgence and everything that belongs to you. Your desires, your ambitions, your thoughts, your dreams, your possessions. Surrendering ourselves to Jesus, right? In the parable, it says when he found the treasure, he went home and he sold everything so that he could buy the treasure. Unless you lose your life, you'll never find it. Unless you die to that old life so that you can fully embrace the new one. Dying to our old self-centered, self-righteous, self-promoting, self-defensive self. It's the heart out of which we are to live every day, forsaking ourselves and praying for his will to be done by us, in us, through us. Think of what the death of self-centeredness would mean for your marriage. Think of the death of all those things, what it would mean for your marriage, what you could just let go of, what you could just stop demanding. What you, what you could just put down and say, I don't have to have it to be married, it's crucified. I mean, to be happy, it's crucified. I'm free to serve and to give and to love and to not demand anything, to not be a taker, but to be a giver. Let me give you just a couple of quick examples of how the Bible applies this, how Paul in the New Testament applies this in our relationships, and I would say in the central relationship is marriage. A lot of times we read these passages about how to do relationship. 
And we think it applies to every Christian relationship except our marriage. It has special rules, right? It's in a different category. But I would suggest to you that every single command and teaching about how to do relationship well in all those places throughout all of the New Testament teaching applies to your marriage first. And even though he addresses some things, like in Ephesians 5, directly to the wife or to the husband, those, those things do not replace all of the general teaching about Christian character and relationship, right? It just puts it in a context. So things like this, let's look at Ephesians 5, 21, and 22, and 25, which is the passage where he does that, talks to husbands and to wives. <clears throat> but listen to the first sentence in each of those, 21 and 22 of Ephesians 5 says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Right? Do you see that all three of those could be defined as a command to deny yourself. Submit to one another. What does that mean? But to deny yourself, how can you submit to your spouse if you're not denying yourself? In fact, by definition, you must come under and be willing to do their will, willing to have it their way, willing to listen to them, willing to let go of what you want, willing, however you want to say it, to submit to one another. To submit literally means deny yourself. Husbands, I mean wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Wives, deny yourself to follow your husband, as Christ says. I mean, one of the reasons that most women struggle with that is because they always blame their husband or often blame their husband, but I would say it's as much an issue, more an issue. The Bible says it's an issue of the heart of not being willing to deny yourself because that's the only way you're going to do it. But husbands, love your wives as Christ loved his church and gave himself up for her. It's to deny yourself and to die, right? He's saying he's doing the whole cross thing again. Husbands, get on the cross. Get on the cross for your wife. Jesus was on the cross for you. Now you deny yourself, take up your cross. And that's the only way you're going to be able to love your wife. If you die to yourself, and so often that passage is read is where the husband gets to be the one who's full of himself. That's not what it's saying. The demands of marriage, the needs, the wants, the desires of another person requires us to forsake ourselves. It requires it. Seeing if we're able to lean into it, to lean into that path after Jesus, to lean into the cross, the demands and desires and the wants that, that a marriage places on us in both directions. And if we could lean into self-denial and, and letting go of our self-centeredness, first for the honor, out of reverence, he says, out of reverence for Christ, but we do it one unto another for the glory and honor of his name. That's what it means to do marriage, to become relationally and emotionally and spiritually one with another person. We are going to have to deny ourselves so that we could press into them. Take another quick text, Philippians 2, 3 through 5. He says, do nothing. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Do nothing out of self-centeredness. Do nothing out of the passions and desires of the self, that self that should be crucified, right? But in humility, 
in self-denial, count others as more significant of yourself. Start putting spouse in there, right? Do nothing out of, to your spouse in your marriage out of selfish ambition, out of the selfish desires of that person, right? But in humility, count your spouse more significant than yourself. And let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of your spouse. In fact, if you read that in context with the verse that's before it, look after the interests of your spouse first, before your own. You know, that whole more significant than yourselves can be translated just simply think, count others, think of others, reckon with others before yourself. Think of them first, what they need and so on. And then he says, this is nothing else than to have the very mind of Christ. Right? Have this mind among you that was in Christ Jesus. The very mind of Christ. He took up his cross. If you read the rest of Philippians 2 right there, it says that though he was God, he emptied himself. He denied himself. Right? And he took the form of a servant He humbled himself and he took up his cross, even death on a cross, right? He says, do nothing, nothing, nothing out of selfish, those passions and desires because in humility, you should consider other people before yourselves, deny yourself and and serve them because that is the very mind of Jesus who, though in the very form of God, denied himself and took up his cross. It's the way of Jesus, It's the way to follow him. Finally, let me just hit Galatians 2.20s and just touch on it because it did have an impact on me as somebody applied it to me in my early life. In 2.20, it says that I am crucified with Christ. Take up your cross. You died with him. Take it up every day and keep dying with him. I'm crucified with Christ and I no longer live. I was crucified. I'm dead and buried. The old self is dead. It is no longer I. I'm dead, but Christ, a new life that is possible, an abundant life that is like Christ, lives. Right? And it's the only way that it can. I'm crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. So there's an I that is dead. But then there's an I, right? And now the life that I now live in the flesh. There's a new I that lives on the other side by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so as I love others and give myself for others, but I am crucified, right? And I've told, I was told when I'm getting offended or I'm getting indignant and I'm getting that way. And early in my Christian life, somebody said, it sounds like there's way too much I that survived the cross, Right? There's too much of me that survived the cross. I'm indignant. How dare you say such things? Or how dare you think such things about me? Or how dare you confront my sin that way? Or how dare you? Or all these things. Or why aren't you meeting my needs? And why aren't you meeting my and my and my? And the me, my, and I. There's too much of it that has survived the cross. I was crucified. And I no longer live. I am free to embrace and put on a new self created to be like Christ in my marriage, in my home, where I don't live for myself. I don't prioritize myself. 
I don't live in the demands and the passions of myself. Where every day at home and in my marriage, I wake up and every day deny myself and take up my cross daily to follow Christ, to bring honor and glory to him in the way that I am married. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer so famously said, when a Christ calls a man or a woman, he bids they come and die. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have loved us enough to not leave us to ourselves that you loved us enough to not leave us enslaved to ourselves, that you loved us enough to send your own son, that he should take up his cross, denying himself, that he would take up his cross and he would die for us, to save us, to save us from ourselves. Oh God, help us to see that it is I who was crucified with Christ. Help us to see that it is I who no longer live. Help me to see the new self created to be like you in true righteousness and holiness and that I would want it and embrace it and put it on every day. That by the power of your spirit, we would be made new. For we ask and pray it in the name of Christ. Amen.